right, it's time for That Darn Bible Geek once again. And I am Robert M. Price, the Bible Geek himself. Uh, just as a probably superfluous intro to me and the show, um, most of you know by now that uh, I am a lifelong lover of the Bible, though no longer a believer in the Bible. I do not think it is divinely inspired uh, that it can tell me what to do or believe, but uh, I regard it as a great cultural monument uh, filled with fascinating material and uh, many edifying things. Also, some uh, more reprehensible stuff from the Bronze Age. What do you expect? Again, that's not that much of an embarrassment unless you're stuck saying that it's the unimpeachable word of God, right? That just gets you into trouble. Uh, I uh, try to uh, understand the Bible, unravel its puzzles, both those that uh, continue to plague me and uh, those that uh, trouble my listeners. Uh, and... Uh, um, in, in so doing, the point is just to achieve clarity about an interesting book. No one is obliged, in my opinion, to care about the Bible at all, but uh, many of us do, for whatever reason. Uh, maybe had we not been uh, adolescent fundamentalists, we wouldn't care about it now uh, that we're not. Um, I don't know. Who cares? It's sort of a genetic fallacy. Nonetheless, it remains fascinating. And uh, so uh, I welcome anybody who is interested in the Bible and uh, who wants to plumb the depths and uh, unravel the puzzles something you don't necessarily have to wait till you go to heaven to do. People would seem to picture, to expect a great Bible seminar in heaven where the angelic angels will say, uh, uh, Mr. Price, uh, you probably wondered how the voice at the baptism said, both this is my beloved son and you are my beloved son. Well, now you'll know the truth. That's what we hope for, but I don't think that's going to happen. And in fact, we can really solve a lot of these problems uh, here on Earth. And uh, speaking of which, let me shamelessly plug my new book, which is out now and can be ordered on Amazon, uh, namely, When Gospels Collide, subtitle Contradictions as Revelations. And the uh, point of the book uh, is much like that of the Bible Geek, to say, uh, yeah, there are contradictions in the Bible, specifically uh, the Gospels, uh, but uh, don't be afraid of them. Uh, those who make uh, the Bible an idol, and it's got to be perfect according to their definition in every sense, uh, they're uh, getting themselves into needless difficulty there. Uh, if you uh, allow that, no, we had creative writers here, uh, you can see not only that, they made numerous editorial changes in their sources, including each other, uh, but that it's not that tough to figure out why they did and what point they were making. And in my view, this opens up the Bible and makes it much more understandable. And as I always say, uh, there is nothing more pious than understanding the text. So if you're a Baptist or an atheist, a Pentecostal or an agnostic, that's all fine with me. I respect all these standpoints and those who hold them. Um, but I'm um, just letting you know where I stand, and it doesn't matter to me where you stand. Uh, more power to you. But let's get together and take a look at the Bible and its conundrums. 
Or is that word conundra? I've never been too sure. Anyhow, let's look at some uh, nice juicy questions. Here is uh, kind of a long one. Uh, this, I think, is... Uh, yeah, I believe this one is from Diogenes of Ephrata. Not Ephrata of Judah, but Ephrata Cloister, where many of my ancestors lived. Well, I'm educated tonight. Some observations and questions for you. The Gospels say that Jesus was born of a virgin. Does that assertion necessarily imply that he had a father? Uh, given the instances in Greek, Ugaritic, Gnostic, and Egyptian mythology of virgins giving birth without the assistance of a male donor, parthenogenesis, literally virgin birth, uh, was the idea of Mary being impregnated by the Holy Spirit a corollary of the deification of Jesus after he was euhamerized, that is, a, a man being magnified to godhood in popular esteem. In other words, once the mythological Jesus was euhamerized, uh, there was... Um, there was a need to deify him outside an adoptionist strategy. Uh, and you know what that is, right? Saying Jesus started out as an ordinary mortal, albeit an exceedingly uh, virtuous one, and for his virtue, uh, God rewarded him by uh, giving him the honorific position of uh, being his son in an, in an adoptive sense. Okay, um... Uh, let's see, let me go back to the beginning of that. Was the idea of Mary's being impregnated by the Holy Spirit a corollary of the deification of Jesus after he was euhamerized? In other words, once the mythological Jesus was euhamerized, there was uh, uh, a need to deify him outside an adoptionistic crystal, uh, strategy. And having a deity as father was the only way to accomplish a god-man hybrid hero. Parthenogenesis just wouldn't work in the Christ myth being built. He had to have a divine father. Well, you know, those two things are, uh, and there's more to it, but let me just pause here. Uh, those things are not mutually exclusive. Um, for many centuries, Christians have held that, um, that impregnation by the Holy Spirit, however that would have been done, um, is, is entirely compatible with uh, a human virgin mother. Uh, and, uh, and if, if he had a human father and, uh, uh, a human mother, then you're you're beginning to deal with some. You're kind of back to some sort of adoptionism. Uh, but if you say that he was uh, the one parent was divine, one parent was human, you're making him into a kind of a demigod like Hercules or Theseus or Gilgamesh, um, and that didn't go over too big. And and for that reason, Tillich and others have criticized the virgin birth stories uh, as uh, sort of a step backwards into pagan mythology. Anyway, back to. Uh, the question, I think that the process of changing sex, not gender, nouns and uh, adjectives have gender in certain languages, and people have sexes, 
that is, I think the process of changing the sex of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament and mystic-slash-gnostic female being uh, to that of male came about as a necessity of explaining just how Mary got pregnant, for the transcendent father could not accomplish that task, so it was up to the Holy Spirit to be the surrogate father. Well, you're certainly right that uh, there is evidence that uh, the Holy Spirit was thought of as, uh, as female in some sense, as witnessed the nesting uh, hen imagery in Genesis. Res uh, the, the Spirit of God rested upon the water like uh, a hen with her eggs and so on. And also in the gospel, according to the Hebrews, Jesus says that uh, uh, one day he was taken by the hair, by his mother, the Holy Spirit, and taken to Mount Tabor, where he saw the kingdoms of the world spread out, etc. Um, but there's another problem with what you're, you're positing, I think. Like, is the Holy Spirit any less transcendent than the Father? I'm not sure that would, you know, you, one would substitute for the other because of that. Okay, uh, back to the question. After writing the previous, I paused for a day to give some thought about the adoptionist paradigm. The standard mythicist model assumes the priority of a celestial Christ, one who exists in the heavens as a great angel, a demigod, an avatar of Yahweh, an emanation of the transcendent All-Father, what have you. Perhaps in a proto-euhamerizing uh, paradigm, Christ may appear to mortals as a docetic apparition, as in the Gospel of Thomas, something on a plane with the angels of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, or... Uh, the one who wrestled with Jacob. The euhemerizing process took place among early Christians some time after the celestial Christ was bandied about and the need to establish some sort of reality for the more pedestrian potential converts. Like they, uh, and this, what you're saying is, is kind of interesting in one respect, among others, that Tillich said something about this, that we cannot get away from personalistic language about God, though God is both a person and the negation of himself as a person, um, but that God must be spoken of by symbolic language, uh, because uh, a more concrete notion of God as a person, like Zeus, a mythological deity, uh, is unworthy. It's, it's not a symbol of ultimacy. And yet, if God is the ultimate, uh, we do require uh, more down-to-earth symbols like Father, King, Lord, etc., because otherwise it's just too abstract. It's like the uh, joke uh, Jesus says to the disciples, uh, make a comparison and tell me who I'm like. And one of them says, well, some say that uh, you're the hypostatic union of divine and human natures. Uh, others say that uh, uh, you're the uh, second person of the Trinity, uh, others say you're the ground of being. And Jesus said to them, what, huh? Um, yeah, anyway, uh, back to the question. As per the preceding, a man-god hybrid was settled upon and lives on to this day in the orthodoxy. But what sticks out like a red-headed stepchild is the adoptionist Christ. 
Uh, he is neither an eternal celestial being nor a man-god hybrid, and it is difficult to see how the adoptionist paradigm followed from either the celestial or hybrid paradigms. To go from a purely spiritual being to a mere fully human being who was uh, imbued with the spirit of God under uh, upon baptism, and which spirit then leaves him just before death, doesn't seem reasonable in a putative bull session of early Christians. Nor does going from a hybrid man-god to fully mortal seem tenable either. It seems, therefore, to me that the adoptionist Christ was a parallel and independent formulation from another Christology, perhaps based on some unknown itinerant prophet whose followers wanted to insert their scheme in the growing Christ movement, but ultimately failed. Your thoughts on this? Well, yeah, one big problem with the adoptionist theory, which I guess in its most consistent form was held by Gnostics, uh, it's a possessionist uh, Christology. It says that Jesus is not the Christ. Uh, the Christ is the spirit that descended upon the man Jesus at his baptism and, as you say, departed at his crucifixion. Now, why is that? Uh, well, because the Gnostics said that uh, the human Jesus couldn't have discovered the unknown truth of the Gnosis. You needed somebody from the divine Pleroma uh, to disclose that. Uh, and uh, so the Christ spirit descended upon him, uh, and, uh, and, and therefore Jesus was like the channeler uh, for the Christ, and uh, he uh, taught the Gnosis to his disciples, some of whom got it uh, and were, were liberated and enlightened. But um, for most people, it you know, passed understanding. They didn't know what he was talking about. And so for them, he uh, created a kind of a double-track salvation scheme. Uh, plan B was to uh, have faith in his atoning death on the cross. So there were, were two, uh, two ways of being saved based on a kind of double Christology. Uh, and it is tough to um, trace a unilinear progress or regress, if you prefer, between these different uh, Christologies. But on the other hand, maybe that's not the way to go. It may be that people independently had various different uh, Christologies, opinions of Jesus, based on who knows what prior beliefs. Uh, and eventually, they, some of them died off and others uh, joined together and that uh, Christianity as we know it and orthodoxy is not the root but the fruit uh, of, the, uh, of thinking about Jesus. So, very good question. That's not much of an answer. But... Now this in here is from Dr. John Smith, scientific advisor to UNIT in London. Uh, let's see. I think we got some kind of... What is this? A... Doctor Who thing, or Lost in Space. Anyway, during my adventures in time and space, I will, yeah, here we go. I will occasionally use the TARDIS scanner to pick up Earth podcasts, and I recently found your Bible Geek show, and I have a couple of questions. First, you recently discussed the inclusive language present in some versions of your Bible. 
the term Adelphoi, usually rendered as brothers, is given the more inclusive addition and sisters in some versions. My question is about the range of meaning that Adelphoi can take. Um, can it mean brothers in Christ, which could be understood as believers regardless of gender? Words obviously vary by context, and the word brother has more meanings than male sibling, particularly in religious contexts. It is not my intention to defend this inclusive language, but to ask about the range of meanings for the Greek text. Well, yeah, um, I uh, don't think that uh, Adelphoi could include female siblings. There was a separate word for that, almost the same word, Adelphi, I believe it is, just a feminine ending. And, uh, it, and now there's a little more play in, in the meaning of, possible meaning of Adelphoi. It could mean brethren in the sense of relatives or cousins. Uh, Roman Catholics have made a big deal out of this for many hundreds of years, uh, saying that, uh, well, Mary was perpetually a virgin, Jesus was her only child, and uh, the, these guys listed in Mark chapter 3 as his brethren may have been his cousins or his stepbrothers or whatever. That is just possible, I guess. I, I think you'd need some decent reason to suggest it. And the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, that, that certainly is not in the text anywhere. Uh, I don't know that the text contradicts it, but, uh, but yeah, I think it's possible to stretch it. But to me, it's important uh, if you're doing a scholarly, historical-type study of the Bible, to uh, not remove the warts. Uh, it's, it's worth noting that uh, the, the authors of the epistles said brethren because they were, in their culture, you wouldn't have expected women to, to be the audience. Kind of like in 1 Corinthians, uh, women should keep quiet in church and ask their husbands at home if they want to know anything. Uh, there are more liberal views elsewhere in, in 1 Corinthians even. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that, yeah, uh, there, it's like in, in ancient Israel, uh, you weren't supposed to teach uh, the Torah to your daughter. Uh, often women, uh, wives, were much younger than their husbands and sort of had the status of eternal children and weren't expected to know or keep all the Torah commandments. And I think uh, that kind of residual chauvinism, though the New Testament is getting past it, is still present here. And I really am, uh, just like I don't like amending the Constitution, if at all possible, I don't like fiddling with uh, the text. Now, I, I can kind of make an exception if you are talking about lectionary readings, where the point is to uh, address the congregation as if they were the readers, and it's a kind of a harmless modernization to add ancestors. But I, I kind of flinch whenever I hear it. Um, I mean, I'm all in favor of uh, women's equality because I don't have to be in favor of it. I simply recognize it. And uh, in, in the past, I have gone to trouble to have women ministers uh, active in, in what I did. Like I uh, had uh, a deaconess uh, in the Episcopal Church baptize Victoria 
for instance, could have had a male, uh, but I wanted to you know, strike a little blow for uh, women in ministry. Uh, but it's just that my I'm wearing my hat as a historian here. Okay, my second question. Uh, my second question concerns redactional changes in Matthew's gospel. There is one non-change, quote unquote, that has me curious. There are various examples of the author of Matthew cleaning up Markan originals to beef up the Jesus character from the very imperfect Markan original to a much more divine figures figure. Uh, examples include natural healing needing repeated tries versus laying on of hands for instant healing. You remember the, the blind man, uh, Jesus lays hands on him and says, can you see anything? And he says, well, I, I see uh, men, but they look like trees walking around. Okay, let's give it another try. And now the guy can see perfectly, right? They don't find that in Mark. Oh, no. I'm sorry, that, that's in Mark. You don't find it in Matthew, right? He's not going to have Jesus have to try again. Uh, the correction of the rich young ruler's question to sidestep whether or not Jesus is good. You know how that one goes, right? In Mark, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And says, whoa, slow down, partner. Uh, why are you calling me good? And there's only one who is good, and that's God. Now for your question. Right, well, uh, Matthew doesn't like that. Kind of sounds like Jesus is uh, saying he's not perfectly good and is not God. So what does Matthew change it to? Uh, master, what good thing must I do, etc.? Well, whew, pressure's off there. Um, uh, or uh, Jesus being unable, uh, unable versus un, uh, unwilling for the miracles in his hometown, right where uh, uh, they uh, start bad mouthing him, and he's in Mark. He's surprised at their lack of faith because he can't heal hardly anybody there. Matthew says, oh, "Wait a minute." Uh, okay, he just didn't heal, not couldn't heal, and he eliminates the note that Jesus was surprised. Oh, no, Jesus could have you know, healed everybody on earth in a split second if he wanted to, and nothing would have taken him by surprise. So, yeah, that certainly seems to be a product of a higher Christology. Downplaying the messianic secret, etc., these corrections and changes indicate that Mark was not sacred scripture not to be tampered with. So my, uh, my question is, why did the author of Matthew leave in, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did Matthew still want the suffering Messiah? How does this square with the seemingly omnipotent and omniscient Jesus in the text? Well, this gets into the uh, question of whether the reader is supposed to realize that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the opening line of Psalm 22, which is a, uh, one of the lamentation hymns of the righteous sufferer. And it ends on a high note where the, the psalmist says, uh, well, even now at the 11th hour, I know it's not too late. You can still intervene, and I believe you will. And when you do, you'll see me back in the temple offering uh, all kinds of big sacrifices, and I'll uh, have a banquet with the meat and invite everybody uh, to show how grateful I am. Well, it, it, you can well imagine Jesus is a faithful Jew, 
is uh, quoting that psalm and he knows how it's going to end. So it, I don't think that's much of a contrivance, really. Uh, so did uh, Mark mean to say that Jesus had given up? Oh, what a mistake. I, I guess it's possible. Uh, but uh, you, you're not really forced to that interpretation. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, that that is easily a good possibility. And so Matthew, who's a big scripture scholar, realizes that and doesn't change it. He's doing you the honor of assuming you'll know what, what's going on in it. But Luke was not so sure people would get it, so he changed it to something that couldn't be misconstrued. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Uh, so that's uh, one of those. Uh, I think that, that makes some sense of it. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Oh, the pain. Greetings from Luther. Uh, something that startled me somewhat when I began investigating the Bible critically was the seemingly universal agreement that the pastorals in First and Second Timothy and Titus were not written by Paul. Coming out of conservative confessional Lutheranism, I'd never heard such a suggestion in my early years. And indeed, it seems obvious to me that they were not written by Paul. My question is, is there any decent critical scholarship that argues for the Pauline authorship of the pastorals? Or is the only real argument for them something more like, well, they're in the Bible, and they say they're by Paul, and the Bible is true, so... I want to consider the best arguments in all things, but for this, it seems to me there are none. Well, I don't find any of them convincing, but I would suggest uh, you might want to read... I, I think Gordon Fee, an old professor of mine, wrote a popular commentary volume on the pastorals, and I believe he defends the Pauline authorship. Um, uh, let's see. Luke Timothy Johnson, a Roman Catholic, does... And I get the feeling he's just saying, well, I, I got to be a spin doctor for tradition here, so I'll defend the traditional view, but I don't know. Uh, uh, but maybe the best one, and I cannot point you to the book where he says this, but uh, Joachim Jeremias, a good pious Lutheran, he, he believed that uh, Paul actually wrote him, and he's no slouch. So uh, I don't know. Uh, where you'd find that offhand, but I'm sure it wouldn't be that tough to find. Uh, he, he'd be the guy to to, uh, uh, to read, I think. By the way, if you ever want to read a uh, surprisingly good defense of the Petrine authorship of Second Peter, boy, I tell you, that's really a challenge, an uphill battle. If you can somehow get a hold of Michael Green, uh, one of the... Uh, great Christian apologist of the previous generation, debated him once, wonderful guy. Uh, he did a, a, a lecture that was published as a kind of a leaflet once called Second Peter Reconsidered. Uh, and uh, it was under his, uh, he, he used the version of his name, E.M.B. Green, like the color. If you can ever get a hold of that, uh, you might find that very interesting too in the same way. Uh, see, greetings, exalted geek. This is from Tom Shannon again, long-time listener and reader. 
I'm curious about the Doubting Thomas passage in the Gospel of John 20, 25, where Thomas says, uh, Unless I see his hands with the mark of the nails and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I refuse to believe it. That's James Moffat's translation. You mentioned in an episode on either the Bible Geek or the Human Bible that this is an occasion to speak to the reader at 2029. Jesus said to him, You believe because you have seen me? Blessed be those who believe, though they have never seen me. Again, Moffat. It seems to be a hit job on Thomasine Christianity. Um... I know many scholars consider the Gospel of Thomas a later work than the canonical New Testament Gospels, though a lot of scholars also believe the canonical Gospels in their final form are later than apologists would have us believe, uh, namely all in the first century. Is it possible this passage is also intended to discredit the Gospel of Thomas? If so, does this possibility indicate that the two Gospels, John and Thomas, were contemporary? Uh, it might well, and I really don't think there's... Well, I think the uh, the Gospel of Thomas is probably a, 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 written after uh, the canonical Gospels, but probably not by much. Uh, the, the many places where Thomas sounds like the, the other Gospels, but not word for word, I think can be accounted for as memory quotations of hearing the Gospels read in church, uh, remembered loosely by someone who had no private copy to look at. And he added a bunch more stuff. But uh, Gregory J. Riley, uh, and I think in a book called Resurrection Reconsidered, I think that's the title, though I know that's the author, he does say he thinks that John is... Uh, whoever he was, is trying to rebut Thomasine Christianity. You know, there were various uh, Christians in Syria and uh, as far as away as India that uh, said they were missionized by the Apostle Thomas uh, and, uh, and, and so forth. Well, Riley says this is one of several points where Thomas is is made the doubter. Remember about the Lazarus thing. Lord, if he's asleep, he'll wake up and be okay. Uh, besides, we don't want to go there. They're they're looking. Uh, they got a bullet with your name on it down there in uh, in uh, Judea and so forth. Uh, it's like the. Uh, it's like at several points he says it, it. It you can easily read it as John critiquing. Uh, the the views of Thomas Christians, whatever the actual Thomas may have said, right? He was their figurehead anyway, at least. Uh, and in this case, the idea would be that Thomas would have had a more Gnostic view of the resurrection, that it was in the spirit, much like in 1 Corinthians 15, not in a body of physical flesh. Uh, that uh, that's what uh, Charles H. Talbert also says in Luke and the Gnostics. That's why, like John, you have really another version of the same scene from John 20 in Luke 24, where Jesus appears to the disciples behind closed doors and extends his hands and says, look, it's really me, see? Uh, 
Uh, and uh, John says, see the wounds in my hands. Luke is saying, no, just look at the corporeality. No spirit has flesh and bone as I have, the Luke and Jesus says. Well, he, Talbert said he's probably uh, writing it this way to uh, try to rebut uh, Gnostic docetism. And it's very likely that that is what's going on there in, in uh, John 20 with the doubting Thomas. By the way, that story is the only statement in the New Testament that Jesus was nailed to the cross. And of course, it's just an implication there. I mean, really an inevitable one, there, but it doesn't say in the crucifixion account in John, they nailed him to the cross, right? Not in any reputable translation. It just says they crucified him. Well, aren't you splitting hairs, Price? Well, no, because sometimes they tied people to the cross. Anyway, uh, but yeah, good question. Mm, let's see. Uh, Brent in Tennessee. Recently, the local news in Tennessee posted a graphic showing that there will be more darkness than sunlight from now until March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. For those who may not know, St. Patrick's Day is celebrated in Ireland and throughout the Irish diaspora. In the Northern Hemisphere, March 17 is the first day of the year uh, where there's more daylight than darkness. Uh, that is too much of a coincidence. Have you ever heard if the origins of St. Patrick's Day can be traced back to the ancient peoples who figured this out? Uh, most Christian holidays are co-opted pagan holidays. Could St. Patrick's Day be yet another? Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, that was, uh, you know, a way to make adaptation to the new religion of Christianity as smooth as possible. That's why uh, Christmas corresponds to the Mithraic holiday of uh, of Brumalia in all probability. I mean, how would they have known when these things happened? Uh, uh, in fact, uh, I, I don't know that they even pretended they did know in some of these uh, cases. They just said, well, we want to celebrate so-and-so saint. Uh, what day we got open? It really didn't matter. Uh, like Flag Day. What well, was that uh, based on the day... Uh, George Washington wrote in his diary that uh, Betsy Ross finished the first flag. No, I don't think so. It just, you know, needed a, a day. And, you know, if there was some kind of symbolic similarity, what the heck? Uh, all the better. So, Brent, thanks a lot. Uh, let's see. Uh, this from Martin Gatt, the Maltese Falcon. I heard you bringing up the Gnostic myth of the sacrifice of the primal man of light, whose shattered divine sparks give life to the whole creation. In which Gnostic work can one find this myth? Oh boy, to tell you the truth, I need to go back and look at the, the, uh, the different books. They all sort of merge together in my failing memory. Uh... I don't know, I'll have to, to look that up and uh, get back to hold of you. I know uh, Hans Jonas, Jonas uh, in his book, The Gnostic Religion, talks about two different ideas of how the uh, the archons got a hold of the sparks of light, but I, I, I got to check it out. I'm not really sure anymore. Good question. I'll try to come up with something better next time. 
Um, greetings, exalted geek. Uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, Tom, uh, what is this right? Yeah, Tom Shannon again. Uh, my rabbit hole down the history of early Christianities began my freshman year in college at San Francisco State University in the early 90s. Uh, it was a Bible as literature class where the professor required the James Moffat Bible. It was not a cheap Bible, especially for a young student, and it was my first encounter with a critical study of the Bible, with passages in different order, passages in italics, passages in brackets, etc. It opened a new world to me, and I still have it, unlike most books I have had 30-plus years later. The funny thing is, I've never heard mention of this translation since. Um, my question is, are you familiar with this translation? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? I know you lean toward the New American Standard Bible and recommend cross-referencing other translations. How does Moffat stand up? Ah, I like it. I think it's good. It's capable. It's uh, interestingly fresh. Uh, the guy was a major a Bible scholar in his day, and uh, I think you're wise to uh, to read that and compare it with the others. It's a good one. You just, I don't know if it's even in print anymore. I got my old copy many years ago, really 30 years ago, and it was old then. I don't know. I'm sure you can still find one, though. You've already got it, but I would recommend to anybody uh, that they get it. By the way, that and many other now obscure New Testament translations are um, discussed in a terrific, fascinating little book uh, by Herbert Dennett, D-E-N-N-E-T-T, called A Reader's Guide to Modern Versions of the New Testament, uh, published by Moody Press. And the guy takes loads of them and, and uh, has a few definite passages he looks up to see how they're treated by the different translators. It's really interesting and can get you hooked on the habit of collecting and using different New Testament translations. Uh, okay, now this, I think, yeah, this now is from Christopher Beck. I'm attending a small group Bible study, and currently we're working our way through the book Twelve Ordinary Men by John MacArthur. This book is investigating the apostles one by one, and of course takes the Bible literally while profiling each of the companions of Jesus. I was hoping you could provide a quick summary of the Apostles from a biblical criticism standpoint. Do I recall you mentioning that they were likely based on only four characters, but repeated three times? Where did the common list of twelve originated, and why twelve? Is that an echo from astrology? What do we really know about the twelve? Well, uh, it seems to be an attempt to mimic the twelve tribes of Israel, uh, and uh, the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls sect did the same thing. Of course, that wouldn't be too surprising if they were the early Jewish Christians. But um, but that in itself may be based on astrology, because the ancient Hebrews certainly knew about astrology. Uh, and that's why Isaiah condemns it. He doesn't like that it's a favorite among Jews. Right? He, he only wants authorized channels of revelation. Um it, it's very odd that we have uh, three attempted complete rosters 
uh, well, I guess four, really, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. Uh, and uh, they don't quite agree. And then in John, you have a list of seven. It, it's, it knows there were 12, but it doesn't have occasion to mention all of them. And in fact, these guys, this group is mentioned only in the Johannine Appendix, chapter 21. Uh, let's see, what do we know about them? I'd say pretty much nothing. Uh, the nothing is said, even in the New Testament, about anybody but Peter, James, and John. And this this was uh, so embarrassing in some ways that uh, the evangelist Matthew, of course, that's a later uh, application of a guess to an anonymous book, but it tries to supply at least some kind of backstory for Matthew, one of the twelve disciples, by stealing Mark's character, Levi, the tax collector, and just changing his name. There is no place where it says he, and, and Levi, whom he surnamed Matthew, and no, nothing like that. It's just Levi and one, Matthew and the other. And uh, Matthew doesn't show up in Mark's list of the, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, Levi doesn't show up as Levi in any list of the uh, the twelve. Uh, let's see. So Mark thought of Levi as a, as a tax collector, but nobody says anything about Matthew. Uh, and of course, we, we hear that James and John uh, stopped an exorcist who was successfully using Jesus' name to cast out demons, and Jesus was kind of ticked off at him for it. Uh, we're told that James and John were pretty steamed at getting the cold shoulder in a Samaritan town and wanted to incinerate everybody with a napalm from heaven, just like Elijah had done, but Jesus told him not to. Uh, and and th th needless to say, th this is not a historical datum, right? This is just a kind of a contrast, almost a satire of uh, Elijah in the same situation. John appears as Peter's sidekick with no real role to play in the book of Acts, like when they go to Samaria to lay hands on the new converts that Philip has made so that they can receive the Spirit. Um, so this kinds of... And we hear that, that uh, James, the brother of John, was executed at the order of Herod Agrippa I, but why, right? We were told virtually, well, really nothing about that. Um, so who's left? Well, Peter is the only one we think we know anything about, but uh, what you read about him is either pro or anti-Peter propaganda from different factions in the early church, like uh, like Loazi said, the story of Peter denying Jesus, uh, thus purchasing a one-way ticket to the inferno, uh, that's got to be Pauline slander against Peter. Uh, and uh, or and and uh, positive propaganda. You are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. I'm giving you the keys uh, to the kingdom. Uh, you can make the disciplinary decisions, and God will uh, rubber stamp them. And so, what Mark just forget about that? He just left it out. I mean, this is not historical information either. Uh, 
and uh, so if it's not propaganda, the rest of it is uh, just a literary gimmick. Peter is uh, just like Ananda in Buddhist stories. Ananda is a, uh, a staunch disciple of the Buddha, but a little on the simple side. And he frequently asks the Buddha something or makes a suggestion, and uh, the Buddha has to correct him and say, well, no, actually, it's this way, which is just what you have with Peter, right? Uh, do we pay the temple tax? Well, let me ask you this, Pete. Uh, from whom do the... Um, Peoples of the earth, uh, the, the, the kings of the, the nations, exact taxes uh, for, from their own sons or from foreigners? Oh, well, I see what you mean. Or uh, how many times must I forget my brother, Lord? Uh, seven? No, no, you're just getting started. I tell you 70 times seven, uh, etc. And uh, so he, these things, he's just like Dr. Watson. In, in, uh, Holmes has no need of him, right? But the reader does because he needs, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle needed a way for uh, um, Holmes to explain for the reader's benefit how he determined that little Sally was the Shropshire Slasher. Uh, that's what Peter's there for, to stand for the reader, to ask the reader's question. Uh, and uh, they didn't have footnotes. Uh, so we, we really have nothing uh, about uh, these guys. And the thing you, you're referring to, I mentioned that uh, there may have been four guys originally. This I get from the great Robert Eisenman, who said that uh, it kind of... Look at the names of the four guys in Mark Three. His brothers are Jacob, or James, um, Judas and um, Simeon, or Simon, and uh, Joses, or Joseph. Uh, who are these people? Well, I have a sneaking hunch that Joseph was originally in the previous line. Is not this the son of the carpenter, Joseph? And some copyist put it in the wrong place, but who knows? But as for the other ones... Uh, Ju there are two Judases among the twelve, right? Judas Iscariot and Judas not Iscariot, as John calls him. Uh, and then Thomas uh, would is called by the Syrian church Judas Thomas. And uh, the name Theudas would seem to be another version of either or both uh, Judas and Thomas. Uh, as would be Bartholomew, which is a Greek name, Bar-Ptolemy. Uh, Ptolemy was a big Jewish name because um, they, the Jews got along well in Ptolemaic Egypt. Right? So a lot of people named after the emperor, Ptolemy. Um, but that sounds like it's either a pun or a derivative of Thomas. Uh, and... Uh, Oh, let's see, uh, there are two Simons, right? Simon the Zealot and Simon Peter. And uh, James, there's James of Alpheus and James, uh, son of Zebedee. And, and keep in mind that Luke makes John the Baptist a cousin of Jesus. Uh, so what's going on here? That still leaves you with Philip, but you almost wonder if somehow Philip the deacon has not somehow been promoted redactionally into the Twelve. Um, and then uh, Andrew, 
well, this is stretching it, but that's that means man, uh, and it uh, that's kind of an important word in early Christology and in Gnosticism, the primal man, who knows, the son of man, I don't know, but so many of them could easily be understood as just literary multiplications of a smaller number of, of figures. Uh, and uh, as I tend to think that's true, especially since we know nothing about these guys. They're just a bunch of names. Right? You may be thinking, well, wait a second. Aren't there all kinds of Acts of Thomas, Acts of Paul, Acts of Peter? Yeah, written in the second and third centuries and filled with legends. There is just no historical content to these. Just read any one of them. I think you will see what I mean. Even the idea that Paul was beheaded by Nero, you only get that in the Acts of Paul, in which Paul immediately rises from the dead to come back into the courtroom and threaten Nero. Come on, come on. We really know nothing about these guys. Did they even exist? Uh, not much information. Ooh, let's see. Yeah, okay. here's, here's one from uh, Neil Roddy. I was watching a show the other day where a character was in distress and began praying. It occurred to me I never really thought about the meaning behind the hand gestures one makes when praying, whether it be hands open and pressed against each other, or some variation thereof. Do you happen to know the history of hand gestures incorporated into prayer, and what role they play? Uh, I, uh... I think it's it was more widely used, perhaps along with a little bow, to indicate respect even to other people. Uh, I think I've seen it used that way. I'm not quite sure what the, the point uh, was. Um, I know uh, another popular prayer position was to kneel down on both knees and to hold your hands outward at 90 degrees from your trunk, a uh, cruciform uh, position. And uh, C.S. Lewis had something interesting to say. He said, uh, don't kid yourself, uh, you're not just a disembodied brain. Uh, he, the position of your body and the actions of it determine your consciousness. And so prayer postures, whatever they may be, are an attempt to bring all of you into alignment in the act of prayer. I think that's, that's a pretty good uh, notion of why anybody does it that way, but I have to admit with the, the steeple hands, I'm not really sure where that came from. Okay, Joe Schmo says, I'm sitting here watching the movie Thor Ragnarok. You may have seen it, you bet. Uh, it is from the stable of Stan Lee. Ragnarok is literally the near destruction of Earth. Volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, supersonic winds, immense cosmic lightning, uh, and uh, death near extinction and extinction of many species. Large mammals over a certain size were wiped out. Mammoths, giant sloths, giant bears, giant camels, giant deer, and others. When the Ragnarok happened, these mammals were wiped out. Similar to the dinosaur die-off, the large animals died, the smaller remained. Could it be that the gravity of the Earth changed and the increase was too much for these species to die off? You got me. I have no idea. Uh, so back to my power of knowledge that I've deviated from. What was the rainbow bridge to Asgard? 
when the planet Mars would oscillate between Venus and Earth, it would come so close to Earth that plasma would flow between the two planets. Like when you touch a plasma ball and the currents in the ball would go to your hand. Uh, so I know that the Rainbow Bridge existed. That fact makes me have the power of knowledge. I think this sounds like Velikovsky, right? Um, uh, let's See, I know the meaning behind many of the myths and legendary figures, and it gives the power of enlightenment. I've wandered too far off of the original intent of my message, uh, but knowledge is power. The truth shall set you free. In that sense, I am free. My suggestion to all Bible readers, read the first chapters of Genesis as an eyewitness account of environmental changes on Earth, not speculation of how the universe was created. Uh, thanks, Joe. Uh, Oh, let's see. Uh, yeah, uh, I am uh, not quite sure I go along with that. Uh, it just seems to me the Rainbow Bridge was uh, just a theory uh, like you find in uh, Genesis after the flood, that it was God's, in that case, it was God's war bow. And he was hanging, hanging it up to show that he would not use his powers as a storm god to flood the earth again. Uh, or uh, in uh, the Gilgamesh epic, uh, Ishtar pledged never to flood the human race out again and placed her lapis lazuli necklace in the sky for the same reason. I would guess this is what they thought, too, that when you saw the rainbow, maybe somebody was coming down from, uh, from Asgard. Okay. Well, I uh, think that's it for tonight. Uh, my voice will probably get pretty sore if I continue, but I hope to be with you again uh, shortly, and I would uh, really love it if you would take a look at my book, When Gospels Collide. Also, uh, as you know, recently my book, um, Judaizing Jesus, appeared. Very shortly, yet another one called... Um, uh, merely Christianity will dawn, and I'm nearly done with uh, still another uh, called The Gospels Behind the Gospels. And if any, I know some of you uh, Bible Geek listeners are, like me, fans of H.P. Lovecraft, uh, very shortly a new collection, a new anthology edited by me uh, called The Yig Cycle about Father Yig, the, the serpent god mentioned in Lovecraft. Uh, that's going to be a pretty fat book, over 400 pages, loads of good stories in it. Uh, some from obscure sources I just bet you've never seen. So, uh, all kinds of stuff. And my uh, book, uh, Reinterpreting the New Testament, is still available. You don't want to miss that one. Okay, see you next time on the next exciting episode of The Bible Geek.